ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. This podcast is produced on the lands of the Bunurong, Bunwarung peoples of the Eastern Kulin Nation, as well as the Wurundjeri, Gadigal and Waramai people and people of the Kanamaluka. The director of the Wilderness Society, Dr Bob Brown, faced the court last night. He pleaded not guilty and is now in Hobart's Risdon Prison on remand until Christmas Eve. You heard that right. The leader of the No Dams movement, Dr Bob Brown, was arrested in December 1982. If you refuse bail, there's a possibility of Christmas in jail. If that's necessary in making a stand, there'll be uh, a thousand more Christmases for this forest and this beautiful region. It's a very small price to pay indeed. The bail conditions included not returning to the blockade. And so, on principle, Bob refused. The prison was full of protesters, just like they'd planned. Bob was there for 19 days, until... Dr Brown was one of three southwest blockaders who applied for bail in the Hobart court today. Dr Brown said he had been faced with a crisis of conscience. So, do you remember how Bob had run in the state election? The one where Robin Gray got elected and none of the Franklin candidates did? Well, Bob was runner-up for his seat. And while he was in jail, the guy who beat him resigned from Parliament. In a quirk of the Tasmanian system, when a member of parliament resigns, the seat goes to the next person in line. So Bob Brown signed the bail conditions and went from inmate to member of parliament overnight. Dr Brown, do you intend to make politics a full-time career? No, that's not my intention, uh, but it is to stick with the Tasmanian parliament for so long as it takes to uh, overcome the biggest crisis uh, probably this century which is the dam issue. As the face of the whole no dams movement, Bob knew he was walking into a hostile political environment. Like one time when all the state's MPs went down to the Franklin to check out the dam's construction, Bob claims he was the only MP who didn't get offered a flight down there. So I went down overnight, uh, went to the airport as the plane came in with the Labor politicians, the Liberals had been the day before, and joined them, and there were pro-dam protesters at the airport, and they all had their banners facing the politicians coming, and I just came in behind and walked onto the bus. What could they do? Bob and the other MPs were taken on a flight to check out the dam construction. When they got back, Bob realised that the news that he was in town had spread. I've got the Hydroelectric Commission and the Labor politicians all standing here, members of parliament, I'm a member of parliament, And I was immediately confronted by a band of hydro workers. They had homophobic signs up and all sorts of things about greenies. A couple came over with lumps of wood in their hand and drew a circle around me and said, if you step outside of that line, Brown, we'll bash your bloody brains out. I stepped outside the line well aware that this was a very dangerous situation. And there were two police officers came over, that's all, and said, uh, Dr Brown, we can't control this situation. We want you to come down to the boat. Uh, we can't control this crowd. And I said, OK, I'll, I'll go with you. And the hydroelectric commissioner in charge of those workers said nothing. The Labor politicians said nothing. And they all went in and had afternoon tea together. 
I'm Joe Lauder, and this is Saving the Franklin, season three of Dig. The Franklin River blockade was like a siege playing out every day in a remote forest at the end of the earth. The bulldozers continued to rip into the trees, and the hostility between the blockaders and locals was getting worse. The conservationists knew that the blockade wasn't actually going to stop the dam, so they looked elsewhere to a federal election and then all the way to the highest court in the country. This is episode five. People were coming in with supposedly open eyes, but with closed minds. They came in with a perception that we weren't doing the right thing. The blockade had been going on for months, and born and bred locals like Brian Gardner were fed up. We were portrayed as being non-conservationists. It upset a lot of people. That must have been really frustrating. I think uh, the tolerance went for a lot of West Coasters. We got to a stage where no one was listening. They showed all the bad shots of the town and all the old derelict homes. It was very derogatory to West Coasters to start with. West Coasters have never been involved in this sort of thing. They're not media obey, they're not, you know, they can't articulate themselves, they can't talk to government, they can't talk to bureaucrats or whatever. So it becomes something they don't really wish to do. Brian Gardner was hired by the Hydro to help out with the media. When media came through, they came to me. Or I'd work out who they wanted to go to and what they could best get with the itinerary they had set up. You mentioned an incident once where it showed that the media weren't giving your side a fair go. Yeah, I took the reporter in my hydro car. We had bulldozers in working. And so we got out of the vehicle and the film crew set up. The bulldozer was shifting logs and stuff from the side of the road. They were told that they weren't allowed to go too close. While they were filming the bulldozer, Brian says the reporter got in front of the machine and then he slid down the embankment. And he sang out, they tried to run me over, they tried to run me over. As you can imagine, I was uptight about it, so I immediately pulled the plug. It definitely is set up. This fueled the anger of the workers. Some of them were even sleeping with their machines overnight to make sure they weren't tampered with. Conservationist groups have disclaimed responsibility for damage done to earth-moving equipment, but police and locals and the HEC have blamed radical elements of the anti-dam movement and have expressed fears that further damage and even violence could follow. What the police are reluctant to talk about, although others have voiced the suspicion for them, is that the explosives could end up on the West Coast. Accusations were flying round. And then there was this. The Hydroelectric Commission's headquarters has now been firebombed. At one point, someone threw a Molotov cocktail at the hydro building. It didn't cause much damage, but the next attack did. Someone tried to flood the building, turning on a hose inside the offices. What's the preliminary estimate of the cost of the vandalism? It'll be some tens of thousands of dollars, certainly. No protesters were arrested or charged over either of these attacks and no formal accusations were made. But reporters were asking where the so-called greenies could be behind them. Meanwhile, the leader of the No Dams movement, Bob Brown, was getting warned off attending one of his own rallies. And then the police rang me and said, we'd prefer you didn't come, Dr Brown, because there's been a threat that you'll be assassinated. We can't verify any of these threats or accusations, but this all shows how deep the distrust and fear ran. I would say I'm, I'm privileged. I've been a residence in Strawn for 75 years. I've worked in Strawn 
nearly all of those years since I was 11. This is Kevin Bailey. He was one of the young machine operators contracted by the hydro. He'd borrowed thousands of dollars to buy this equipment, all on the promise of work at the dam. He's a gentle man, unassuming, but he described himself to my producer, Piat, as a bit of a hothead when he was younger. When I was young, a debate wasn't sort of healthy unless you really got into a rage. And um, it's sad to say this, but a lot of the tensions in the community were dealt with with violence. And I mean between brothers and sisters, mums and dads. I verbally abused people that wasn't on the uh, same page as me that I thought was the right page. I believe I've always been a kind person, but I was probably very critical of some situations. So did that extend then to the protesters as well? I can remember clearly an incident where um, we had a, a track excavator on the back of one of the trucks and I was pulling up at the hydro depot here in Strawn and three young men jumped up on the back of the tray and I jumped up on the tray with an, one of our workers and we pushed them off. Now that could have seriously injured them and can you imagine someone doing that now? In those moments, do you remember how you were feeling? Very angry. I regret some of my actions. Uh, People would be chained to gates at the hydro and the only way to remove them would be with cutting the chain as far away from their hands with an oxytorch and maybe uh, sometimes I made it a bit uncomfortable for the people that we were taking their chains off. I always look back and I think, how could I have done that? But I think it was discussed with the view, how can we get back at what they've done? The Wilderness Society was also worried about the threats of violence towards their protesters. They told anyone coming to the blockade to avoid any other confrontations. And they were even told to avoid pulling over in Queenstown or avoid driving through there with a no damn sticker on their car in case they were targeted. In our heads in Melbourne, it was clear it would never be won in Tasmania. We could support the Tasmanians and give money, but in terms of political influence, we didn't have it. Then you've got the whole thing about, you know, mainlanders coming in to tell the Tasmanians what to do, which, of course, it um, uh, gets used a lot. This is Karen Alexander, who set up the Melbourne branch of the Wilderness Society. Well, it seemed like all anyone cared about was the blockade in Tasmania. She'd been focusing on a different tactic federal politics. I'm sorry, but we're a country, we're a federation, and these are nationally, if not world-significant places. We all have a stake. Isn't it fantastic that we all have a stake in this? So we looked to the national government really quickly. And so you'd been working hard to get one of the federal parties to adopt a policy of stopping the Franklin Dam. What did that look like? I used to tell people when you go and lobby, make sure you look like a Liberal so that you're not scaring people off before you you talk with them. Like, i.e., look like ordinary people, which we are. We're not particularly exceptional. So when did all the hard work pay off? So Labor came out with a no-dams policy in July of 82. That totally changed what could happen because there was going to be an election within uh, six to eight months and you suddenly you had a choice 
And the Libs would have known that for sure. And Labor could see that they had a possibility of getting in. Labor was now no dams. So the pressure was on Liberal Prime Minister Malcolm Fraser to resolve the dams issue before the election or risk losing. But Fraser wasn't making any promises about stopping the dam. Instead, he tried to bargain with Tassie and offered to fund an alternative to hydropower. He was offering Taz $500 million of federal money for a coal-fired power station. That's huge. Even today, it'd be like $1.9 billion. But Robin Gray turned down the offer. It would have been a bad deal for us. Hydropower was so clean and it was an area that we had all the expertise in. And to have built a coal-fired thermal power station and accepted the $500 million offer would have, I'm sure, earned me the absolute disdain of every Tasmanian. $500 million has been turned down by the Premier and uh, there's just no rhyme or reason in it. So the Prime Minister, Malcolm Fraser, hadn't solved the dams issue and was facing a federal election with it hanging over him. And his opponent, Labor leader Bob Hawke, was making a campaign out of promising to stop the dam. So we ended up with the leader of the Labor Party, now a advocate, not just a, oh, it's a policy we've got over there, but an advocate of saving the Franklin, and who could see the power that the Franklin had to change votes. He had the knowledge that there was a very, very vigorous Wilderness Society campaign nationally, which would go into overdrive to change votes if the Franklin was put up the masthead as an election issue. Bob Hawke fronted a no-dams rally in Melbourne with 15,000 people. And his wife Hazel famously wore earrings that said, no dams. I put it to you that if you look at the dam as a dam, it is at one and the same time an environmental obscenity and an economic absurdity. It seemed like everyone on the mainland had an opinion about what was happening down there. What do you think when you hear the word Tasmania? Dams? Well, didn't they have that fuss about damming rivers? They flood things, don't they? The federal election was right around the corner, and on one side was Malcolm Fraser, and on the other, Bob Hawke, with the country's biggest ever conservation movement behind him. The Wilderness Society and Labor knew that they wouldn't win seats in Tasmania, so they were doubling down on their strategy. You know, forget Tassie, this will be one on the mainland. Bob Brown was wearing out his shoes on the campaign trail. We honed it down to 13 seats that we had to target. And this sort of freewheeling campaigning was going on everywhere and no dams triangles were going up all over the place. In fact, I caught a plane to Canberra and instead of getting a taxi into Canberra City, I walked and I put a no dam sticker on every telephone post along the way into the city without being seen by anybody, <laughs> knowing that the politicians were coming to and fro. Right before the election, the Wilderness Society officially wrapped up the blockade. They were worried things could turn really nasty if Hawke won. Only a handful of people remained upriver, determined to watch over the works. Now, all the attention was on the mainland. Bob Brown had one last card to play, a way to get the Franklin in front of voters right across Australia just before the election. 
And his friend, famous nature photographer Peter Dombrovskis, gave him just what he needed, a photo of the Franklin that no one could forget. He said, Bob, I've got my pictures back. Would you like to come up and see them? He had a light box and he put them up one after the other. And I uh, was saying, oh, Peter, that's great. Oh, look at that one. He put up this picture of Rock Island Bend. And I was transfixed. I jumped up out of my chair and said, Peter, that's it. He said, oh, but Bob, it's not my best, it's not my best picture. And I said, yes, it is. <laughs> You've probably seen this photo without even knowing it. Actually, it's on the podcast art for this show that you're listening to. It has an almost surreal quality to it. It captures the wonder of the place. It's a steep, rocky gorge with morning mists and swirling water. It showcased a part of the Franklin that would be submerged by the dam, and it was going to be printed as a full-page colour ad in all the major mainland newspapers with one question. Could you vote for a party that will destroy this? It spoke in volumes and it went right back to having the river speak for itself. And here was the picture that did it. That must have been pretty exciting. Did you feel at that moment that it was a turning point? I felt Peter had brought us and our campaign and the Franklin River an enormous gift. It is true that a a picture's better than a thousand words and uh, in this case it was better than a million words. This was the enduring image that voters took to the election. This is an image that's stayed with me. It served as this pertinent reminder of a very real, very alive and incredibly beautiful place that could be destroyed. On election night, Bob Brown and a crew of TWS campaigners gathered to watch the result at a plush hotel in Melbourne. There was a king-sized bed and all all of us... uh, campaigners who'd got together in Melbourne uh, watching the numbers go up. Shortly after midnight, Mr Hawke entered the tally room to declare a Labor victory and for several minutes there was pandemonium. And then Bob Hawke came on and made only one policy announcement that night. My government will honour the promises that we have made uh, in respect to Tasmania. Uh, The dam will not go ahead. I don't think the management knows yet why the inner springs were broken in the bed, but there were people jumping up and down and uh, crying and hugging each other. It worked. Bob Hawke was in, and no dams was his promise. How do you feel tonight? Oh, absolutely elated for uh, not just everyone here, but everyone else around the country and what they've been able to do to uh, ensure that Franklin River does run free for a very long time. But in Tasmania, as expected, Labor hadn't won a single seat. Traditionally the birthplace of the Labor movement, a Liberal wouldn't win a handful of votes here. But on Saturday, people who have been Labor all their lives voted Liberal. What's the good of saying it's been said and said? (laughs) But you reckon you're not getting a fair deal? We never do. For West Coasters, it felt like their voice didn't count. This was the third time Tasmanians had voted on the issue of the dam, at two elections and a referendum. And now, this time, it was a mainland majority who'd won. We all voted for the dam, and we don't think they should come over here and say it's not going ahead. It should go ahead. 
Mr Hawke has never been to a Queenstown in his life. So how's he going to tell us what to do? What if he came up with something none of us have thought of yet? What about Daddy What is he? God, he thinks he is. So after Hawke was elected, were you confident that that was kind of the end of it? No, not at all. Uh, Every day the bulldozers were in there. We had folk upriver monitoring all this uh, and uh, they're damn going ahead full tilt, in fact, with extra vigour and Robin Gray defiant and saying under the constitution in Australia it's a state government matter. The work is clearly going ahead as if nothing's changed in Canberra. It's hard to believe that Tasmania, with all its economic problems, would continue to spend more than $250,000 every week on a dam that will never hold water. Parochial is not an ugly word in Tasmania. It's always been us versus the mainlanders. And across the state, in the wake of the Hawke election, the majority of Tasmanians are lining up behind Robin Gray. one of those things that's just sort of in your consciousness as a Tasmanian growing up and somehow part of the um, psyche. The psyche, yeah. I'm in the car with my producer Pia and we're driving away from the West Coast. She's lived in Tasmania for basically forever and I live in Melbourne so we have a lot of banter about me being a mainlander. But jokes aside, I've realised it's actually a really big part of the Franklin story. So I wanted to dig into it a bit more. Can you just explain to me mainlanders? <laughs> this kind of like, I just, no, but just like how pervasive that is. Yeah, I think this is really interesting. And I actually think it's a really difficult concept for people who are mainlanders <laughs> or people outside Tasmania to understand just how ingrained this concept is. So it's this really strong sense of, Tasmanian identity as distinct from Australian um, and as distinct from mainlanders. You know, and we were talking earlier about how even if there was a really great offer on the table, if it was coming from the mainland and was seen as the mainland interfering, regardless, you would say no to that offer because you're a mainlander, don't tell me what to do. Do you think it's also defensiveness? Yeah, I think there's been this overlay of we're somehow inferior to the mainland. You know, Tasmanians are the butt of a lot of jokes, you know, two heads. The state's left off a lot of national maps. And I think that, like you say, then drives this defensive mechanism of like, well, we don't want you anyway. What would you know? So who had the legal right to make the final call on the Franklin's future? The Tasmanian government? It was their territory, and they'd voted for the dam. Or the federal government. Under World Heritage Listing, the federal government was required to protect it. The Aboriginal archaeology in Kutakana Cave, the Franklin River, and the landscape around it. Prime Minister Bob Hawke had just won the election with the promise that he'd do it. So he passed legislation that would give the federal government special powers that had let him override Tasmania. They put their World Heritage International Law obligations into Australian law. Next, they had to test these new powers in the High Court of Australia. The court is packed. At the main bar table, there were, I think, 20 barristers. Then there were solicitors 
sitting behind them. The moment of the court opened, there's a knock on the door. It's very dramatic. Knock, knock, knock. Silence! All stand and remain standing. The court files in, the seven justices. Uh, their associates file in behind them. They take their places. They exchange bows with, the, with those at the bar table. This is Michael Black. He was a young barrister hired by the Wilderness Society to represent them in April 1983, when the case went to the High Court. All persons having business before the High Court of Australia are commanded to draw an eye, and they shall be heard. God save the Queen. And then, the, then be seated, please. This was the start of a long week. Michael Black sat patiently in the court as each party made their argument. But he would have to wait for his moment. I mean, it was the sort of case when, when I guess, when you go to the bar, you dream of being in something like that. It's very challenging, very exciting and very important. Legally speaking, this High Court case isn't about the Franklin. It's a case about Tasmania versus Australia, a.k.a. states' rights versus a federation. The Tasmanian government, as well as other states, were arguing that if the federal government could overrule them, well, what's the point of state governments? Would they become obsolete? So every state had their own lawyers there, decked out in white wigs and black gowns. And it won't just be members of the legal profession who'll be listening to the complicated legal argument. Public interest is there also, with some people already having rung the court, seeking booked seats for the hearing. This was the final set in the tennis match that had been going on for years. As the case went on, Michael would get messages relayed to him from the Franklin campaigners upriver, who radioed in over crackly lines. Tell Mr Black to tell the court that the trees are hurting and the trees are apprehensive. So I'd say, yes, we'll, we'll, we'll certainly say something to that effect. What did you think of that? I, I, I was moved by it. I, I could see the sincerity with, with which it was said. As the days passed, the different lawyers each got up to the stand to speak. The protection of Kutakana Cave was a key part of the Commonwealth's case. In response, Tasmania's lawyer made the argument, there's no Tasmanian Aboriginal people left anyway. Yep, that old argument. The statement was corrected the next day and the lawyer apologised. But it shows that even in the High Court, as they were arguing over world heritage, Tasmania's Aboriginal people were still being dismissed. Palawa man Michael Mansell told Pia he was unsurprised by the events. We were accustomed to it. It was pretty obvious that it was a, a forced apology, which is not a, a sincere apology. I didn't think there was anything genuine about it. Can you describe how you, back in that moment, how did you feel? When this happened, uh, it wasn't so much anger as the need to, again, correct the record Make people see the truth. Finally, on day eight, Michael Black was given the chance to present his argument for the Wilderness Society. And in this very serious chamber, with the words ringing in his ears that the trees were apprehensive, he presented his case. And there was one thing that Bob Brown had insisted be included. People down here in Hobart had worked busily overnight. They put together seven photographic books at the Franklin River and we presented them in a pile to Mr Black and said, we want you to give these to the judges just so they can see what they're talking about. 
Oh, he said, we can't do that. Uh, this is not something the court will... Well, we're insisting that you give the judges a view of the Franklin River. They've got to at least see what they're talking about. So poor Mr Black handed up to the Chief Justice. He said, Chief Justice, my clients have want you to uh, accept as evidence these photographic collections on the Franklin River, whereupon the Chief Justice put his glasses a little forward on his nose and looked over the top and down to Mr Black and said, I think not, Mr Black, lest those photographs inflame the court's mind with the irrelevancies. <laughs> we just, oh, well, we just had to hack it. They well have thought that our barrister will get up and make a rousing speech. They may well have been disappointed that's not what happened and it's not what could have happened because that would have been utterly inconsistent with the, with our roles, which was to present a, a, a careful argument in a constitutional case. And I think it was all over in probably uh, seven or eight minutes. What do you think would have happened if you kind of took on board that advice and tried to make a rousing political kind of activist speech? I, I shudder to think it would have been the betrayal of one's role as counsel. All parties had had their say, and the seven judges retired to deliberate their decision. Now it was time to wait. And it would take at least a month for the decision to be handed down. Everyone was waiting anxiously, from the conservationists to the West Coasters to politicians of all stripes. Would the Franklin be damned or not? And looking back at the campaign today, 40 years on, what impact has it had on the modern environmental movement? What would be the Franklin's legacy? I say two famous words in my vocabulary. Actually, it's three. I was wrong. Don't know what'll happen to Tasmania if that dam doesn't go ahead. I don't know what'll happen to Tasmania if it does go ahead. A woman came out of this crowd and said, at 11 o'clock this morning, I was doing my ironing and the people in the unit next door started screaming. And instead of the calling the police, I started screaming too. They sentenced me with 15 months in prison. Yeah, apparently it's illegal to tell people to protest now. This series is reported and hosted by me, Joe Lauder. Pia Wersu is our producer and reporter. Bethany Atkinson-Quinton is our supervising producer. Tynan King is our researcher. Our executive producer is Claire Rawlinson. Engineering by John Jacobs and our original theme music by Casey Holford. Special thanks to Tim Roxburgh. Also, thank you to the Wilderness Society for their archival support. It's Sam Hawley, host of ABC News Daily. If you want to really understand the stories that are shaping your world, 
from cost of living pressures to climate change, check out our podcast. Every weekday, we take a deep look at one issue in less than 15 minutes with the help of some of the ABC's best journalists. To hear more, search for ABC News Daily on the ABC Listen app. I hope you can join me.